You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Jesus used illustrations of weddings, worn clothing, and wine to teach us how to get ready. Turn with us to Mark chapter 2 verses 18 through 22 as the pastor delivers the message, Here Comes the Groom. All right, if you'll take your Bibles then and open up to the book of Mark and chapter number 2, that'll be our text for today, Mark chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 18. Now we've exited the month of June. And this is our second Sunday now in July, but it's just kind of fresh on my mind. Because as I think about the month of June, uh, I'm always reminded of that month. It's, It's special for us because we celebrate a special time every June. But June is a month of weddings, isn't it? I mean, if you're going to get an invitation to a wedding, it's probably going to be, you know, June is very full of those kind of things. And I wonder at times if that's not the reason why that month has been hijacked by our uh, pride crowd as Pride Month. Um, It seems as if it's in direct opposition to everything that is good and right and pure and holy. And so we hijacked that month of of weddings with this idea of pride and destruction of the institute of marriage. Because God Himself instituted marriage in His sovereignty. And with it, He pointed mankind to the oneness that He sought to experience with His creation. And that's just another reason why I believe that we should fight to preserve this institution and not allow man to make a mockery of it through redefinition. In the Old Testament, we find God referenced as the bridegroom along with the bride who was whoring Israel. But in the New Testament, we see that Christ is indeed the bridegroom and we have been grafted in so that the church is the bride. So I want us to get a better view this morning of the bridegroom through God's Word. And that's where we're at in Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse number 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, oh, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now last week, 
we saw that Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. And we looked at the call of Levi, also known as Matthew. And this great celebratory feast occurs at Matthew's house. And of course, him being a a former publican tax collector, you can imagine all the people that he brought in to that feast into his house. It was a bunch of other tax collectors, a bunch of other publicans known as sinners in that day. And so it's likely as we come here to Mark chapter 2, verse 18, that this is a continuation of that same scene. Some of the other Gospels kind of tie this a little closer together than even what Mark shows us. So even though chronologically we see the two together, it appears that probably this is the same scene still being carried out. So while Jesus and his disciples are feasting with sinners, John's disciples... That is John the Baptist's disciples, those who haven't got on board with Jesus yet. John's in prison, but they're still kind of hanging on and clinging to him. They haven't quite gotten on board with this Jesus thing just yet. So John's disciples, along with the Pharisees now, they're in the middle of a fast. Look at verse number 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples, disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, how did everybody know that they were fasting at this time? Well, because these guys were very good at uh, broadcasting and letting you know they were fasting because they were real proud of their fasting and how spiritual it made them appear to be. So they were in the midst of their fast and Jesus and his disciples are feasting. Now, the Mosaic law only required fasting one time a year. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 16. That one time a year was in the days leading up to the Day of the Atonement. That was the only prescribed you must, thou shalt do kind of feast that the Israelites had. So it was proclaimed that once a year during that time leading up to the Day of Atonement, they were to fast. But over time, the Jews began to fast during times of mourning, times of national distress or national importance. Um, But also it became linked with, fasting did, became linked with Repentance and the idea of repenting of sin. John fasted himself as a means of self-denial. And so that's what his disciples were doing. They were following in that example, denying themselves, and they were fasting. But the Pharisees, they would fast twice a week, and they did this in a self-serving badge of honor type of way. You find that in the book of Luke chapter 18 where Jesus is confronted with one of these guys and He says, look, I fast twice a week and I give all to the poor and so on and so forth. So this was one thing they took great pride in was the fact that they fasted. Now, they're likely in the midst of their fast while Jesus and His disciples are feasting. I don't know about you, have you ever been in a time where you weren't eating or you were fasting and everybody around you was eating and that could be kind of like an uncomfortable time. Or maybe you just altered your diet a little bit. There's certain things that you don't have anymore. Maybe you say, I won't have sweets for a while. I'll have desserts. And everybody else around you is having the most beautiful, scrumptious, oh, sweet dessert. And you can't have it. You know that feeling? I can imagine as these Pharisees and John's disciples, not only they're having an issue with Jesus to begin with, but here they are in the midst of their fast and they're watching these guys have a a great big meal and they're having a good time. So they're a little disgruntled in more than one way probably at this point. And they ask the question, 
how Jesus and why his disciples weren't fasting. What a display of sin in their minds. How could how could Jesus be with these sinners? How could they be feasting when they should be fasting? They had no idea whose presence they were in at that moment. They had no clue. It was the dawning of a new day. And there was about to be this breakthrough of spiritual life because God Himself was among them. And this should have been the most joyous of all occasions because God is here. God is with us. Emmanuel. But Mark gives us three illustrations in this passage this morning to help us understand more about this bridegroom, Jesus, who had come and who is coming again. So I want us to look at those three illustrations briefly this morning. The first illustration that Mark gives us is that of a wedding feast. A wedding feast. In verse number 19, Jesus says to them in response to this question about His disciples not fasting, He says, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, when Jesus mentions this wedding feast, He makes actually a few statements. By calling Himself the bridegroom and referencing a wedding feast, Jesus makes a few statements. First of all, He makes a statement about His deity. Now, we've seen this already, haven't we, in the book of Mark. People who question whether Jesus truly was God. And some who want to claim that Jesus never actually said that He was God. Absolutely not true. And and in more ways than one, not only did He pretty much just come out and say it, but He gave so many other examples and illustrations that left absolutely no doubt to His hearers in that day what He was saying and the claims that He was making. We've already seen that in the fact that He forgave sins of the paralytic. That was a great example where he claimed to have authority over sins and the Jews understood at that time that only God forgave sins. And if he claims to have authority over sin, he is claiming to be God. That's exactly what he was doing and exactly who he was. But Jesus is making a statement about deity here as well when he says in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. Now, who is the bridegroom in this story? The illustration that he is making is an illustration of himself. He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. Now, why is that important? Because these good religious folks would have understood that there's only one bridegroom mentioned throughout the Old Testament period. Now remember, after the completion of the Old Testament, there have been some 400 years of silence, and we're in this time now where the Gospels are being written. The actual actions are happening. They've not been recorded yet. They're actually taking place. So all that they would have of the Scripture at this point would have been what we call the Old Testament. And all throughout the Old Testament, there's only one person referred to as the bridegroom, and that is God Himself. God is known as the bridegroom. And who is the bride we find in the Old Testament? It's the people of Israel. 
So God is the bridegroom. Israel is the bride. And now here comes Christ saying, I am the bridegroom. That's a bold statement. Because again, what Christ is doing is he is claiming to be God. He's claiming more than just Messiahship. He's claiming deity. So in the New Testament, we see this shift away from God the Father as bridegroom, Israel as the bride, to we see the Son of God as the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. So Jesus is making a statement in this wedding feast analogy, not only about deity, but he also makes a statement about crucifixion and ascension. He talks about, in verse 19, the wedding guest are not fasting while the bridegroom is with them. Now, in this culture, when they would have a wedding, it was more than just a one-day thing like we do now. This would go on all week long. And it was a time of feasting and celebration. And there would be wine and there would be uh, celebration. We saw Jesus' very first miracle at such an event, didn't we? At a wedding there in Cana of Galilee. It was there that Christ turned the water into wine. And, and you see evidence again that this is a long, extended time. Now, if you're in the habit of fasting, what is the one time you might think of when you would not want to fast? How many of us would want to be fasting during a week of wedding celebration? I mean, that was the fun time, the good time, lots of food. That's not when you would want to fast. And so in the midst of this time, Jesus is, is drawing an illustration of that time the guest of the bridegroom, when he's there, they're not going to be in the midst of a fast while the bridegroom is present. They're in the midst of celebration and feasting. So again, he's likening it to himself. He's saying, I'm present. That's why they're not fasting. That's why they're celebrating. In verse 20, though, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. Now, this is one of the first references that Jesus makes about what is going to happen to him in the future. This is, is a, this is a statement pointing us toward the cross. Because the language that's used here is very interesting. It's translated in the ESV as taken away. So the idea of removal or taken away is actually one of violence when you look in the original language. A violent, snatching, catching, tearing, taking away. A removal. Not just a gentle one, but a violent removal. And Jesus is foreshadowing or foretelling of that time that's to come. He's saying, I'm going to be violently ripped away, taken away. Right now, they're enjoying my presence. Right now, my disciples are feasting, not fasting. But there's going to come a time when I'm going to be violently taken away. And he would, in a violent death, die upon the cross of Calvary. But then suddenly he would also be removed from this earth away from them. And when his presence was no longer there, that would be the time when his disciples would begin to fast. That's when they would be fasting and praying and seeking him because he was no longer walking amongst them. So Jesus was making a statement about deity. He was making a statement about His crucifixion and ascension. But He was also making a statement about His return. Because though He would be taken away, and violently so, quickly taken away, He says they will fast in that day. But we understand that that will not continue on forever. 
They're looking forward to that day when the Bible tells us will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. When they're reunited with the bridegroom. The bridegroom was present with them. He'd be taken away, but there would be a day when he returns. I want to read a statement to you from the pulpit commentary. It says this, After our Lord's death, His disciples frequently fasted as a necessity and went through much privation and trial. And so it must be, for the most part, with all who will live godly in Christ Jesus until He returns to take to Himself His kingdom when there will be a glad and everlasting festival. You know, that was kind of a temporary festival for them, a temporary celebration we read about in Mark, but there'll come an eternal celebration one day when we're face-to-face with our King and we live and dwell with Him for eternity. Now, the Pharisees, they would not be ready when the heavenly feast came because they had rejected their King. So Mark gives us this first illustration about the bridegroom, and that is that of a wedding feast. But notice the second illustration he gives us, and that's of a worn garment. A worn garment. In verse number 21, Mark says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So what Mark does is he, first of all, he gives a metaphor that's commonly understood during that time. They were probably closer to the idea of patching and maintaining garments than what we are today. We're in the throwaway culture, right? You just kind of get it, and when you're done with it, you toss it, you get another one. And you know, there was a day when we didn't do that. We might be headed back to that day, who knows? But there was a day when you just didn't toss things out, you repaired it, you would fix it. And this illustration would have been commonly understood during that time that if you took a worn garment, a well-worn garment especially, that developed some type of tear or rip or a hole in it, and you replace that hole, you put a patch on that hole, if you took a worn garment that's been washed and dried and shrunk over time and it's done, done all the movement it's going to do, and you put a fresh, clean patch of cloth that's never been washed, never been dried, and you put that in that garment and you sew it in, what's going to happen? Well, when you wash and dry that garment now, that new patch is going to shrink and it's going to change in size. The worn garment's already done what it's going to do, but the new patch you put on it is going to move. And what's going to happen? It's going to create another tear because the new part is stronger than the old part and it's moving and they just don't coexist. So if you were going to patch an old garment, you just need to patch it with something old, not with something new. An illustration they all understood. So the metaphor was commonly understood, but the meaning was not understood. (laughs) The meaning of this illustration that Jesus was giving, they didn't comprehend. He's telling them that they could not keep their old way and accept the new thing that was coming amongst them. And this is what people often try to do with Christ. You see, Jesus is not just a patch for our filthy rags. The Bible is clear that all of our righteousness is but what? Filthy rags, right? It's an indicator of those old rags that would have been used to bind up a leper's sore and absorb all the pus and blood and ooze and things that came out of that sore. Nasty, filthy, old garments. You wouldn't use your best of garments for that either, would you? You would use the old rags for that type of thing because you knew they were going to be ruined. That's the best 
that we could produce in and of ourselves. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But here's what we try to do with Jesus. We try to take our old filthy rags and our old life and we want to take just enough of Jesus to try to patch up all the problems and messes in our life. To somehow make things a little bit better. And so we'll try a little bit of Jesus, but we're not fully given to Him. We're not made new. We just want to accept Him into everything else that we already have. That's very true of this idea in our society today. That it really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. We're all going to the same place anyway. If you want to take a little bit of Jesus, that's fine. In fact, I might even take a little bit of Jesus and mix it along with my paganism and my whatever else it may be. And somehow we think we can just combine those things. And then there are those who just want to continue to live their life like they've been living it. They don't want to make any changes. They don't want to see anything new, anything different. But they want to you know, check the block and make sure everything's okay for eternity. So they're good with saying a prayer. They're maybe even good with being baptized. They might even be good with walking an aisle. Maybe even putting some money in a plate. Doing all of those types of things. They're fine with taking a little bit of that Jesus as long as it doesn't totally upset the apple cart. They're not willing to give themselves fully away. But they want to take a little bit of Jesus in. What's going to happen? It's just like putting that new patch on the old garment. And the tear is going to be calm. Even works. When Jesus comes in our lives, He doesn't come in as a patch for our filthy rags. He's the replacement for our filthy rags. He clothes us in His righteousness. Our self-righteousness is the filthy rags, but when we're clothed in Christ, we're clothed in His righteousness. We are made new. And that's why repentance is necessary. From the very beginning when Jesus came, He, he preached that message, didn't He? Repent and believe the Gospel. It was a message of repentance. What did Jesus tell us last week in the passage from Mark chapter 2? Uh, he says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to Repentance. That they wouldn't be the same, that they wouldn't stay the same, but instead that they would be transformed. So you can't keep your old ways and have Jesus. Let me say that again. You can't keep your old ways and have Jesus. You can't have both. There's a separation there. So you'll keep your old ways or you'll have Jesus. One or the other. There's a mistaken idea about a well-meaning statement. I've probably used it. You've probably used it. But we say things like this. All you got to do is just come as you are. How many of you said that or heard that said? Just, just come as you are. That's all God wants. Just come as you are. Well, if you mean by that, come in your imperfection and acknowledge your need for His perfection, or if you're acknowledging that you can never clean up your act enough to be acceptable, then that statement's true. Come as you are. But many have this idea that Jesus accepts you just as you are. That is, in your sin. That He is loving and He says, 
well, that's okay. We'll just excuse that. That's not the case. He calls us to repent. And we've talked about that word. It means literally to hate self. I hate my old self. I hate who I was in my sin and in my rebellion against God. And I desire to be a new man in Christ. So if come as you are means you aren't broken over sin (laughs) and denying yourself to follow Christ and come as you are won't work. (laughs) It just won't. Mark gives us an illustration of a wedding feast in a worn garment. But then finally he gives us an illustration of a wineskin. A wineskin. In verse 22, Jesus said, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskin. So now, Jesus gives another metaphor that would have been easily understood and another meaning that wasn't understood. He talks about the making of wine. Now, understand, this was very common in their society and the, the wine that they would have used in celebration through the, through the wedding feast would have been actual fermented wine. You understand that, right? And when Jesus turned water into wine, it was actually wine. Okay? So there are some who want to try to twist the Bible because of their, their agenda and make it say something totally different. That is not the case. Now, the Scripture is clear. Again and again, we're warned against the misuse of wine. And we're warned against drunkenness and debauchery. Again and again, we're warned of those things. But understand, Jesus is talking about actual wine here and the process of fermentation that creates that wine. Now, I haven't tried this myself, but I understand I've seen some some illustrations of this where when people make wine, they'll take that bottle and as the fermentation process is taking place, they'll put a balloon over the top of that bottle. And what happens to that balloon as this fermentation begins and you have this, this movement of gases inside, you'll find the balloon can swell and shrink, right? It can change in size as this process is going on. It lets you know that the, the process is active. Something is going on in there. And you can think if you see that balloon moving, you see the gases expanding, you can think what was happening in the process that they would use. They would use a, a different type. They would use like an animal skin, a piece of leather type uh, bag into which they would pour the wine. And if you put it inside of this this older, dried out container, what would happen when the processes began? When the expansion started, it would burst open the wine skins. And not only did you lose the wine skin, you also lost the wine. Everything was lost. You had nothing. So you would take a new, stronger wine skin when you would begin the process and it could handle the changes that were taking place during fermentation. This is a very similar illustration to the old cloth with a new patch. And Jesus is telling them that the old structures of their tradition could not coexist with the kingdom. They couldn't hang on to the way they've been doing things. They couldn't hang on to all the tradition they piled into mankind and live life in the kingdom. The two just weren't going to work together. R.C. Sproul made this statement. 
He said something so transcendentally new had happened that they could not receive Christ in their lives without being made new themselves. Just like if you put the new wine in an old wineskin, it would burst. You can't just take Jesus and put Him into the old man. When you encounter Jesus, the old man is put away and a new man is put on. You are totally transformed in Christ. We're clothed in His righteousness. So if we are in Christ... We look forward to the coming of the bridegroom and the celebratory feast in the Father's house. But we must be made new in order to receive Him. That means of putting off of the old. So there's a question for us this morning. And the question that we take to others. Have you been made new? Have you been made new? Are you ready? You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.